excited uh, we can be here together and on Easter Sunday we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. What a wonderful thing as uh, literally millions, millions of other Christians around the world are doing the same thing. In a period of 36 hours after Jesus' death, his disciples, his followers, had to come face to face with many of their different fears that they had. And today for, is a day for us to celebrate. On that day that Christ confronted and overwhelmed their fears, their many questions, their doubts. And he does that today in our lives. Decades ago, uh, Henry Nouwen, he was a Christian writer. He was a former Notre Dame, Yale, and Harvard professor. He is known for also his uh, work, the last years of his life, uh, working with folks with disabilities, with uh, severe uh, mental and physical disabilities. And he says this, he says, we are fearful people. It often seems to me that fear invades every part of our being to such a degree that we no longer know what a life without fear would look like. When we think, talk, or react, fear always seems to be there, an omnipresent force that we can't shake off. Look at the many questions we raise, he says. What am I going to do if I don't find a spouse? A house? A job? A friend? What am I going to do if this happens, if that happens. Friends, we need a, a greater reality, a great reality that serves as an anecdote to drown out all these different fears that we have. And the redemptive reality, uh, the gospel writers here in Matthew accomplishes three different things. It seeks to break us out of the house of fear in a place of trust in Jesus. That's the good news of the resurrection. We're going to see these three headings that, he's the, that we see here in this text. The first one is encountering Jesus instills courage. Encountering Jesus instills courage. We see this in verses 75, uh, excuse me, chapter 28, uh, excuse me, 27, and then verses 57, 57 through 61. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He goes to Pilate and he asks for the body of Jesus. And then Pilate ordered it given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in a new tomb, which had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a great stone in the entrance of the tomb and went away. We see this right here uh, fulfills a prophecy, as many of these do, of Isaiah 53. Isaiah prophesied 700 years earlier that the Christ, the Messiah, would have a death with the wicked and also with the rich. With the wicked, because he dies as a criminal. He dies with two murderers, insurrectionists, on the cross. He also dies with the rich here. Joseph, a rich man, places Jesus in his own tomb. You see, Joseph, something along the way had happened in Joseph life. Something had changed him. Luke gives us a little bit more of a mention in his gospel that he didn't consent to what the other leaders, the Sadducees and Pharisees, the other Jewish religious leaders um, had done to him. It, 
In Luke 23, it says this. It says, Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council. That's the council, this ruling council of the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin. He said he was a good and righteous man, Luke writes, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. So we see that somehow along the way, Joseph, the way was this political figure, this high religious figure. He no longer is a people-pleasing man. But he takes courage, and boldly he goes to Pilate. So Pilate, he's the governor of the area. He's a Roman. And he's able to go to him. And he, he, so he goes boldly to him, no matter what it might end up saying about his reputation, the results are, his career, his income, all of that is absolutely on the line here. It's absolutely on the line. He doesn't know that if he's going to kick out and he's going to lose his seat on the council, that he's going to lose his place of income, that he might not longer have this high place or be able to be who he is. But he takes a lesson from Jesus. Jesus who said things like this. He says, I warn you whom you should fear. Not him who can kill the body, but has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him. So he was living for God, for his fear, for his respect, for his love, not for man's. There's a picture here of what uh, the tomb might have looked like. It might have looked something like this. You can see kind of a sub uh, cutout right there. It would have been cut into the rock face. Um, there are actually some of these that you can see today in, uh, outside of Jerusalem. And then right here, there's a stone off to the right that could be rolled into it. It probably was rolled there so that um, wild animals couldn't get to where the bodies were. And it's... Let's go to verse 59, 60. We see that he's laid in a, in a new tomb, he had cut out of the rock. And only a rich man, we know, could have had a, his own tomb. And had, not only that, but had a tomb so close to the capital, the holy city of Jerusalem. Verse 21, excuse me, 20, excuse me, 61, we have two witnesses. We see that there's at least two other witnesses, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, who are also there. Mary Magdalene, we know from also the rest of Scripture, uh, was a woman who seven demons had been cast out from. Man, what a backstory. I'd like to know that backstory when I get to heaven. She had encountered Jesus. She had a, encountered a greater reality in the fear that she had been living with, or that she could be living now, that they've, they've crucified her Savior, her Lord. I can't imagine what was going through their minds, Joseph's mind. This other woman is probably, she's mentioned probably in also verse 56 that we didn't read, but she's probably the mother of James and Joseph. And these were part of the, the many women who followed Jesus and some who even helped support Jesus out of their own finances. They saw this happen and they stayed with Jesus. They were witnesses I think partly why Matthew mentions them is because not only did he know them, but he says, all right, you can still go ask them. Go ask them and see what they've said, what they saw. And I want to draw really quickly three applications that we can see here as believers in Jesus take, take courage because of what Jesus has done, because they've encountered Jesus. 
First thing is that we can be courageous against sin. Joseph stands up against the sin of murder that his fellows, peers, were committing. He stands up against that. He fought, I'm sure, against the sins of unbelief and cowardice in his own heart. That said, you know what? Hey, wow, they're, they're crucifying this guy. Who knows what could happen to you? You could lose your career. You could lose everything. And for those who are believed, we also, we can fight against our own sin. We can fight against the sin of our own hearts and injustice that's around us. Number two, we are courageous in fearing God, not man. We're courageous in fearing God, not man. We've been touched in such a pr- profound way by God of the life and love of this man that he's changed us. He's loved us. And so just as Joseph was changed, he just didn't want to go with the status quo that he'd been going with maybe for so much of his life. And this is even before he had a perfect knowledge of Jesus' death, what that actually even meant for him. Even before the resurrection, which now we have, how much more can we be changed by it? That we can boldly live holy lives, fearing God, not others. That we can boldly share the gospel with others. And the last one, we are courageous to suffer for Christ. Joseph here reminds me a little bit of uh, Moses. In the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 11, the writer there talks about Moses. He says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for a reward. He was looking for a reward. So like these women, Joseph counts the cost to follow Jesus, to be associated with this crucified Messiah rather than fear man, with those consequences. And Easter proclaims the same, that there's this greater reality that we can live with in our lives. Jesus is dead. Jesus is risen. Second point we see is encountering Christ provokes opposition. We see that in verses 62 through 66. Encountering Christ provokes opposition. Verse 62, it says, The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. They said, Sir, we remember how the impostor said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. So the next day after the day of preparation is, of course, the Sabbath. We're supposed to rest. And these are two rival religious groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're different, totally different political ideologies, and they despised one another. They hated one another, but they're forced to work together in order because they're trying to get rid of Jesus. And guess what happens here? They break their own Sabbath regulations to conspire against Jesus. They had all these strict rules that they created, all these extra ones that aren't even found in the Bible, and they break their own laws to be able to try to kill Jesus, to conspire against him. It's a great irony there, because they persecuted Jesus for the same thing. They said, Jesus, you can't heal people on the Sabbath. That's against our laws, even though it wasn't against God's laws. But they break God's law. Verse 63, 64. We see maybe they, maybe they heard about this from Judas. 
You said, after three days I will rise. This is something that, that wasn't necessarily common knowledge. So maybe they heard about it from Judas, someone else. And they say, therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse, worse than the first. So the first deception for them would have been that Jesus had said that he was the Messiah. Jesus said that he was the son of God. The second, he says, would have been a fake resurrection. A fake re resurrection would have proved the first thing and would have been powerful. They say, all right, we can't have this. So let's set a guard there. Set a guard for this tomb. Seal the tomb. Set a guard. And we see that in verse 65, 66. Pilate said to them, all right, you, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. This guard was probably the Roman military guard. Uh, it was assigned to oversee the temple security. And again, this is amazing that these two groups are working together. Ideologically, theologically, politically, they were opposites on the spectrum. Yet these guys are working together because Jesus has such a thorn in their side. There's good news. that In the midst of opposition that maybe you encounter in your life as a believer that we might encounter as a church. Yet Jesus overwhelms our fears with the greater reality of who he is. And to do that, we see this third point. Verses 1 through 10, encountering Christ, encountering the risen Jesus, causes worship. It leads us to worship. Let's look at verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, and the other Mary went to see the tomb. So on Sunday, on Sunday, and this is why through the last 2,000 years to his, um, Christian history, we've changed from Fridays being the Sabbath to Sundays. We've changed it to Sundays because that they, did, they found the empty tomb. Jesus rose from the dead. You, you even get to see in uh, Revelation, in the book of Revelation, which is written much after, it says, uh, John says, he begins the book by saying, I was in worship, I was praying on the Lord's day. I was praying on the Lord's day. And he, no doubt, is probably talking about a Sunday. Because it's the Lord's day. It's when he rose from the dead. He fulfilled all that he was going to do for us. And we see here, some of the female disciples of Jesus, they've rested on the Sabbath like they should have, and they go, and they go to the tomb. They had remained courageously faithful. They had stuck it out, these female followers of Jesus. And we see something amazing happens in verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. So either this earthquake happens simultaneously. Another thing, that, man, I just can't wait to see when I get into heaven. I want the, the DVR or whatever. <clears throat> earthquake happens simultaneously. Or the angel maybe uses the earthquake to roll the stone back out of the way. And his, we see that there is an empty tomb. There's an empty tomb. His resurrection confirms... Jesus' identity, who he is. And that's the good news of Easter, that we are made right with God. God has done his work. 
You see, we're, we get so caught up still in trying to, man, I'm trying to be good enough. That I can make myself good enough. But it was Jesus' work, his death on the cross, his resurrection, that satisfies God. That we are brought close to God. That we know that God loves us because God did that. There's no more trying to prove our way with God. Verses 3 through 4 This angel, his appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. So these guards are probably battle-hardened Roman soldiers, right? The greatest army in the world at that time. And they are terrified. They're terrified at this one angel, this one soldier in the true army of God. The appearance of angels throughout the Bible um, causes great fear and terror often. People are, are struck dead. They, they fall on the floor on their faces. And many are even tempted to worship. Verses 7. It says, then go quickly. He, let's, let's backtrack. But the angel says to the women, he says, don't be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. So it's like almost as if he rolls back the tomb so that they can see in that, all right, he's not here. He's already gone. See the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So right here, he tells, he tells, go tell the disciples. This could be maybe the 11, his really close gang there. He says, all right, go to Galilee. That's where Jesus did a lot of his ministry. It was kind of a, a home base. He did it all over the place, but that was kind of a home base for him, um, where many of his disciples were also originally from. He says, go there. And verses 8 talks about how they depart quickly with fear and great joy fear and great joy. I can't imagine they're just amazing emotions. They're a mix of emotions going into this. They thought this man was, yeah, I mean, who knows what they had the exact picture of what was going on, what was going to happen, even though he'd said that he was going to raise from the dead. He said, I had to die. And they're sad. They have questions. They have doubts. They have fears. And here, now, they have this fearful experience with an angel, with an empty tomb. They say, all right, go. I told you, go. So they go in fear and in joy to go and tell the disciples what they found. That they found an empty tomb. And behold, Jesus met them. Jesus meets them. He says, greetings. And they came up and took a hold of his feet and worshipped him. So we see here that Matthew points out this. You talk to eyewitnesses, and there's, Jesus is no hallucination, but he's something that you can touch. These women grab hold of him. They're filled with joy and dared to hope that they're, this man, their Lord and Master, is alive again. And Jesus, being a good Jew, he knows that there's only one true God. There's only one God. And he alone should be worshipped. 
But Jesus doesn't stop them worshiping him because he is God. He is the son of God. And it's amazing in this society and culture 2,000 years ago where women were considered second-class citizens, where women couldn't even give their a testimony in the court of law. But the gospel writers don't overlook this. They talk about these women, that they were the first witnesses that saw Jesus. If they were trying to make something up, they would have just left that out. But no, it's because it's true. It's true. The gospel writers, they point this out. And then Jesus, in verse 10, he greets them and then he tells them, he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. So Jesus uses that word, my brothers, because all of his disciples, they, right, they had, some of them had betrayed him, all, some had disowned him, they'd all left. But he gives these comforting words, say to my brothers, meet me in Galilee, there they'll see me. He gives this comforting reassurance. The application, too, is, is for us. That maybe today, already, this morning, yesterday, I know this is for me, that there are things that I need forgiveness for from Christ. But the application is true. Like He says that he forgives us. He welcomes us back. He gives us this comforting reassurance of his unconditional love for us. And like us, they had their fears, and that their fears got the best of them. Their fears got the best of the disciples. And we too, often enough, can be caught up in these fears that overcome us, controlled by our unbelief and our many fears. The resurrection itself is this fearful event. These women are filled with fear. And for many of us, if the resurrection is true, if Jesus is who he said he was, if he really died, then we have to change the way we live. If Jesus is really God, if he's raised from the dead, we have to change. And that's a fearful thing. You, you see, I think, I think they had all these very real fears that, that we also face. Have I been working? Have I been following Jesus all for nothing? They have fears of circumstances, of many what-ifs that fill their mind. They're living in the fear of others, the fear of their reputation, the fear of the future, the fear of failure, fear of death and judgment. But this is the amazing news of the gospel and the resurrection. That there is hope. There is a hope. There is an answer to that fear. You see, if we're like a man that's, to give us a little illustration, that's being chased by this, this huge dog, that we're running in fear of him, that this dog symbolizes our fears that we have. And this dog is absolutely terrifying. It's snarling. It's barking at us. And it's, it's running after us. It's as, running as fast as it can. It's on our heels. It's this ever-present reality of fears that keep chasing us. What if this happens in our life? What if that? What if this goes on in the future? What if this goes wrong? 
What if this happens to people I love? We go into this tunnel. This dog is chasing us. And suddenly a greater reality overtakes us. There's a freight train that is coming in the opposite direction. And suddenly that dog doesn't look as scary. You see, we need a greater reality than the fears around us. We need a greater reality. And the person, the reality of Jesus, of the resurrection, is like this freight train that's moving through history that grants a greater reality. And their fear, like these women, our fear too can be replaced with worship. Turn to worship at who Jesus is, God himself. You see, the greatest fear actually that any of us should have is God himself. That because of our sin, that God and his goodness and holiness, that he's a righteous and just judge. And to fall in the hands of an angry God, that's a fearful thing. But the good news of Good Friday and Easter Sunday is this, that Christ has made a way for his righteousness to be exchanged with our sin. It says in Romans, the righteousness of God will be counted to us who believe, who just trust in him who was raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our sins and was raised for our justification. Our justification means just that we are made right with God. He was delivered up for our sins and he's raised for our justification, our being made right with God. Maybe if this isn't a reality for you, it's because you haven't trusted him yet. But this is something that Jesus opens up to every single one of us. Maybe you've been around church a long time. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you say, oh God, he doesn't know the things that I've done. I have these doubts. I don't have all my questions answered. But still, Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. I think of Jesus when Thomas. Thomas wasn't with the rest of the twelve, the eleven when, when Jesus... Um, goes and appears to them. And he says, all right, I, I'm not going to believe that Jesus is the real deal until I stick my hand in his side, until I see his scars. And Jesus later, he appears to him. And he says, all right, here, Thomas, here, look, look. He doesn't rebuke Thomas. He doesn't shame him. But he says, all right, here, look, I'm here. And he says that to each one of us. So maybe some of you in this room who haven't yet trusted in Jesus. He says, here. You might not have it all together. But you can come and be made right with me. If you just trust in me, who I am. And we'll have an opportunity to pray. You have an opportunity to make that decision now. And all that you need to simply do is, is a few things. Take knowledge before him that you're a sinner. That you're messed up. You don't have it all together. You've sinned against God but then to trust in what Jesus did. To trust in his work, not yours to save you. And then lastly, to make him Lord. To make him Lord of your life. To live in obedience to him. To follow him. You're in charge now. You're going to lead me to true life. And if that's a decision that, that you make, that's a prayer that you pray, then I, I pray and ask that you'd share that with someone today. You'd share that with someone. See, the, 
amazing reality, like these women at the tomb. Their fear turns into worship. And this is a reality that has to sink in for all of us. Even if we've known Jesus for a long time, it has to meet our own fears in our lives. It has to be applied to just a head knowledge and work its way into our hearts and how we actually live. I'll tell you real briefly how I meet it sometimes in my life. When I go up with the fear and death that's in my own life. Because of my darkest hours and the dark pit, um, which can be my lifelong struggle with depression. When that hits me, when that takes me, when I'm just overwhelmed with my own failures, whether they're real or perceived, that just keep me in this mud, in this deep pit, that just crushes me, when I've been rejected or betrayed, when I have this fear is, all right, am I good enough? When I have the fear that I'm gonna be found out as an imposter, when my fears even become a reality in my life, man, I can't, didn't want that to happen. Then just like C.S. Lewis says, C.S. Lewis says this, Jesus, the resurrection is a kind of first fruits, a pioneer of life, that he has forced open a door that's been locked since the death of the first man, Adam, that he has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. You see that God has worked that into my own heart, of who Jesus is, what he's done. That he's overwhelmed my pain with the thought that he's not done with me. That Christ rose from the dead so that he can break the death and destruction in my life. He can raise that to life. That he's not done writing my story. Death can bring new life. The deaths, the small deaths in our lives, he can bring to life. That'll be all worth it. That there's true life to be found in the next. The redemptive reality of Jesus confronts and overwhelms the fear in all our lives, friends. Would you trust that? Would you trust that? Would you bank everything on that? All that's holding you back from your relationship with God. All you have to do is come and receive it by faith, by trust. Let's pray.